On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Bossy of the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam. Sam said his news in separately because he was traveling with a host of meetings around policing. This week, we're doing something a little different for the interview. In this episode, we're sharing a conversation I had with the residents and corrections officers at the Young Men Emerging Unit, or YME, in the D.C. Department of Corrections. It's a unit in the D.C. jail that is structured around a mentorship program where residents can apply to become mentors to other residents in the unit. The rehabilitation is key. And I feel like it's easy to just lock someone up. It's easy to just send them to the hole, send them incarcerate them. It's easy to do that. But if you can teach a brother like myself how to go back into the community, it's an amazing thing. The message for this week is something that I've had to remind myself a lot. Put things out in the world that you're proud of. And try not to put it out until you're proud of it. We so often are pushed by the pressures of our peers, by the news cycle, by what we think matters in the moment. And sometimes we lose sight of like, we know what it's like to put out something we're proud of. I know what it's like when I write something I'm proud of, or when I give a speech that I'm proud of, or when we do a project that I'm proud of. And I know the difference between that and something I like, a talk that went well, a project that was okay, better than nothing. But the bar should be things that we are proud of because when we do things that we're proud of, we know that we have put all the energy that we could into it, that we worked smart. We didn't need to be fatigued for us to be proud. And I always think about something a teacher told me in elementary school. She was like, DeRay, sometimes more is just more. And I think sometimes we think that like more hours will make it better. Sometimes more is just more. But I say all that to say that it made me think, put things out that you are proud of. Don't put it out until you are proud of it. Let's go. Hey, it's Sam. And today I want to talk about a new report from the Institute on Assets and Social Policy that looks at student loan debt and the impact that student loan debt has by race. So obviously student loan debt is a huge crisis. There's $1.5 trillion in total student loan debt that's owed. And what this report does is it uses an extensive data set called the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth that actually followed over 7,000 youth starting from ages 12 through 16 and followed them all the way through their mid-30s up till 2015 and 2016 when they were in their mid-30s and tracked the impact for many of them that taking out student loan debt had on wealth. And the findings are actually quite shocking. First of all, the study found that there were huge differences between white student loan debt borrowers and black student loan debt borrowers that not only were Black students who borrowed student loan debt, not only did they borrow more student loan debt overall than white student loan debt borrowers, so $19,500 for the median black student loan debt borrower compared to only $16,300 for the white median student loan debt borrower, but also that over a 20-year period over the course of going to college and then after college, that for black students, only 5% of that amount was paid off over that 20-year period. But for white students, they were able to pay off 94% of that student loan debt. Now, there are many reasons cited for this, among them the fact that white students tend to have more access to familial wealth and get paid more for the same work due to the pay gap and the income gap. And there may also be issues in the terms of those loans and the interest on those loans and predatory lending. But all of that comes together to result in a reality where black student loan debt borrowers are facing a huge crisis today, where most, if not all, of that student loan debt is still owed. And that has impacts on the racial wealth gap. So the study looks into the impact on wealth of taking out student loan debt. They find that for everyone, independent of the amount of the student loan debt, so excluding that total debt amount, Owing student loan debt was associated with having $8,200 less in wealth than not owing student loan debt. And not only that, but the typical black student loan holder's total wealth was negative $10,700 compared to close to even, so about zero for whites with student loan debt. 
So this is an additional piece of research building on an existing base of evidence that the student loan debt crisis is disproportionately impacting black people. It's also impacting Latino communities, although not to the same extent as black communities. So for example, the study does a breakdown of who defaulted on those student loan debts over the 20-year period. And they find that only about 20% of white student loan debt holders defaulted, whereas 33% of Latino student loan debt holders defaulted, and 50% of black student loan debt holders defaulted. So this crisis is huge. It is disproportionately impacting communities of color and black communities in particular. And this is all the more reason to be fighting for student loan debt cancellation, as we've seen from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, because those types of policies will have a measurable impact on the racial wealth gap, particularly for young people, for millennials. And that is all crucial to actually improving the economy as a whole. Hey, y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-U-I on Twitter. You know, a few years back, one Donald J. Trump Mm. tweeted, can someone Mm. be impeached for gross incompetence? Mm. And here we are in 2019, Mm. hoping that indeed that can come true. Mm. Because that tweet aged particularly Mm. well. When Nancy Pelosi stood her Speaker of the House self up behind a podium and said the House will pursue an impeachment investigation inquiry. Impeachment. And here we go. Impeachment. Impeachment. Man. You think about Mueller. Everybody thought the Mueller report was going to be the thing that was going to get everybody worked up. And it was all this Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. Mueller happened and not much happened. And then the whistleblower comes with this nine-page report that we now know. Uh, You see Trump threatening the whistleblower, talking about in the older days we took care of them differently. You're like, that sounds like you're calling for murder. And importantly, in the whistleblower, in the complaint, In the first sentence, it says, in the course of my official duties, the president of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. It doesn't meander. You can't read into it. It is clear what the whistleblower is saying. And a shame on the New York Times for essentially outing the whistleblower. And I thought the whistleblower's lawyer was really strong in saying that not only does this put the client in harm's way, But it puts a lot of people in harm's way because as somebody searches for who the actual whistleblower is, a whole host of innocent people will be caught up in the net. And the whistleblower, who's also innocent, will eventually be targeted as well. So I'm happy that the actual complaint is public. I'm happy that there seem to be hearings coming up. And it is frustrating, but good, finally, that Pelosi realized that she had no choice. That This was like, he has done so much wrong. You had to do something. So much wrong. And I'm hoping that given all of the bad karmic energy he has out in the universe, all of the bad things that he has done, and not just things that we disagree with, right, but things that are literally and legitimately criminal and corrupt, that one of those things will ensure that we do not have to deal with him any longer. You know, I think about all of the times throughout history when we've seen people go down, not for the thing that we thought they'd go down for. We were just happy to see them actually get moved to the side. What we should also remember, though, is A, how impeachment works. So a lot of people probably do not remember the Clinton era. I remember being a young person then, and that was the first time I really fully understood that impeachment does not automatically mean that a president is ousted, right? You talked about Andrew Johnson. Nixon, of course, decided to resign instead of be ousted, and Bill Clinton was impeached but remained in office and finished out his full two terms and obviously has had a full second act since then. And so we have to, A, remember what impeachment actually has the power to do. Um, Most certainly it doesn't mean that he will automatically be gone, but it can certainly ease the road to that potential outcome. The other thing that we have to remember is that, unfortunately, impeachment inquiries and investigations often suck up all the air from the room. So what that means is that other work, um, other bills, other proposals are not going to continue to see the same kind of energy that uh, they would have had this inquiry and investigation not been happening right now, um, which is an unfortunate after effect of this. And it doesn't mean that we should stop pushing. It doesn't mean that we should stop caring. It doesn't mean that we should stop calling the Senate because this inquiry is happening in the House. We still have to ensure that our elected officials do their job. We also have to recognize that right now that job is ensuring that this impeachment inquiry and investigation is truly successful. 
Last thing I'll say is that it just really feels like a bunch of conservative white people watched The Wire and took all the wrong lessons from it. <laughs> they couldn't do it like they held it down in Baltimore. But, you know, these are some clumsy folks, man. The best part, too, is that the Ukrainian president used to be an actor who played somebody who was a normal citizen who became president. And then yeah, he's like a comedian, right? Yeah. But he like became famous for doing this show of a guy who was not a politician who suddenly becomes president in the end. And then he after the show, he ran for president and won. Incredible um, to the news. So my news there's been a lot of conversation over the past year or so about philanthropy and kind of taking the the veil away from the philanthropic world and pushing us to be a lot more critical and to do a lot more excavation as to how philanthropy operates, who the people donating this money are, and where is their money coming from. Matt Dillon at Vox has been doing some interesting work around it, and he wrote something about a new proposal that was proposed by two economists at University of California, Berkeley, Emmanuel Says and Gabrielle Zuckman, that would fundamentally change the nature of how philanthropy operates. And that is in a new paper they did on the wealth taxes. The two authors also worked together to design Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax proposal, which calls for a 2% annual levy on wealth between $50 million and $1 billion, and a 3% levy on wealth in excess of $1 billion. So what they're proposing now is a radical wealth tax of 10% of wealth over $1 billion that is meant to gradually draw down the wealth of billionaires and a tax of 90% on wealth over a billion dollars that's meant to raise huge sums of revenue all at once by essentially making it so that there is a de facto maximum wealth level. For some people, this might seem scary, but again, remember how much a billion dollars is. It is a thousand stacks of a million dollars and ask ourselves, why does anyone need that? But from a philanthropic perspective, Sayers and Zuckman propose making foundations and donor-advised funds subject to the wealth tax if they are still controlled by the wealthy benefactor themselves. So, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation would be treated the same way as Bill and Melinda Gates as individuals. To avoid the wealth tax, the foundation will have to either, one, put people other than the Gates in executive control, or two, spend its philanthropic funds more quickly. This can go one of two ways, right? If it is rigorously enforced, it could spur a massive increase in the speed and pace of giving. And that wouldn't be, you know, these one-time things. Billionaires would likely opt to front load their donations. And instead of waiting to do these sort of late end-of-life gifts, as many do, uh, what's concerning is that it could make people donate to things that are easier and don't require as much research. For example, it is easier to just donate a million dollars to the Met rather than donate a million dollars to testing new medicine that could be used to fight malaria in different parts of the global south. But if we work to ensure that the philanthropic world is funding nonprofits who do that work rather than them holding on to this money themselves, then I think it gives us a different framework with which to think about it. But part of the point is that so many of these foundations are sitting on so much money, right? They're only actually giving away a small fraction of the money that they continue to sit on. And this is saying that you cannot just use these foundations as a tax haven, as a place to sit on your money under the pretense of giving it away, that if you are saying you're going to give away this money, then that is what you need to do. There are so many times when we know what works and yet the best solutions have trouble gaining access to the philanthropic dollars they need in order to exist uh, and persist. So I'm glad that this conversation has continued to broaden, do in no short order to a lot of the writing and research that has been happening over the last few years. And I say that as someone who has previously led a nonprofit who was caught up in grant cycles, was caught up in not just having to prove the worthiness of our hypothesis, of our work, of our data, which is one thing, but also to have to deal essentially with the whims of really wealthy people. The amount of what I call herdball that happens in philanthropy is a lot. So there will be a new idea, a new fad, a new trend that the folks in the philanthropic space get access to, and they play herdball. They all run toward that one thing. In education, a few years ago, it was technology. Now it's personalized learning. And anyone who is coming with those ideas, they're getting funded. 
band-aid. But people who are operating on things like culturally responsive pedagogy or developing a diverse teacher workforce or helping to increase teacher pay, these folks are not getting the same kind of love because currently the way that philanthropy works is it's simply a stacked game. And it's really, really difficult for people with new ideas, for people who are grassroots, and certainly for leadership that have marginalized identities to gain access to the kinds of funds that they need. You know, the thing about it is that some people are like, you know, we need philanthropies to fund a host of these things and that it is such a win that these wealthy benefactors choose to put their money that they earned in such an incredible way back into society. And it's a reminder that if we make the system strong in the first place, we won't need a million programs, right? So the reason why we need to feed homeless people under bridges is because they are homeless. And we could actually just guarantee people housing. You know, I hear all these people, and my news will be about food stamps, but it's like there is enough food to feed everybody. Like, we could actually solve the majority of these problems if we actually invested in the front-end solution as opposed to thinking that the program solution at the back end is actually the best way to deal with it. The second thing is that So many of these nonprofits, they invest in good causes as a way to raise more money. So you you think about we see a set of people, they're doing something, give them $100,000, and then you raise $2 million off of saying that you're doing good things in this one community, and they're not seeing that money. And I think about that a lot with uh, the way the protests worked, is that there are a lot of people who invested in uh, protesters and activists and then just turned around and used that investment to make more money for themselves. How do we make sure that we also talk about the need for really strong leadership at the government level? Because I can say in a place like Baltimore is that the nonprofits have single-handedly held up any sense of good work strategically happening in the city of Baltimore. Like if not for the nonprofits, the city itself was not doing it. And that does not mean that the nonprofits are the best solution. It does mean that until we're honest about leadership at city levels, then I don't know if the problem will ever change. Because in a place like Baltimore, you really do need not the mayor is structurally strong, but you need a mayor and city council that just are willing to make these big risks that we know will pay off in the end, that are willing to go against the grain and stop funding and investing in things that we know don't work, like spending half the city's budget on policing, for instance. Uh, and the nonprofits really have carved out that space. But the reason they have to hold it down single-handedly is because city leadership often fails so spectacularly. So I'm interested in the next five, 10 years, how do we start to not only grow a set of leaders, but empower people to believe that they can be in those roles? Because as you know, so many people think that like they meet the mayor or they meet the whoever, and they're like, oh, that person must be a gifted thinker. And it's like, nope. They just knew how to play the game better. They just played it better than you did, or they just felt like they should be in the role. Uh, and I'm interested to see that change. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 
at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P people. So from my news, I read a fascinating opinion piece in the New York Times by Scott Hetchinger, who is a public defender in New York City. His op-ed was all about mandatory minimums and how that is an issue not just in the criminal justice space, but more broadly uh, when it comes to police violence and police misconduct. Of course, we've been talking about mandatory minimums a lot because they help drive mass incarceration. But one of the things he helps us realize in this op-ed is that it also allows officers to engage in misconduct with impunity. So he essentially talks about the fact that police officers will do any number of things that violate a citizen's constitutional rights, stop and frisk, different seizures, searches without cause and warrants, and that when that person is unlawfully arrested, they're then tempted by the prosecutor with a one-time-only plea deal. And because that one-time-only plea deal stands in opposition to a mandatory minimum, literally 95% of people accept the plea deal instead of of dealing with the possibility of a mandatory minimum. I want to just read something to you from his op-ed. He said that in New York City, for example, less than 5% of all felony arrests that are prosecuted have hearings to contest police misconduct. For misdemeanor arrests that are prosecuted, a third of which are initiated by police, less than 0.5% of cases go to a hearing. A guilty plea also has the effect of insulating police from any civil rights lawsuit, asserting false arrests because a plea of guilty serves as an admission that the officer's arrest was justified. So the threat of a mandatory minimum essentially allows for police to go off unscathed, even if they violated somebody's rights, for prosecutors to take home another conviction, and for it to become impossible for the term of their natural lives for citizens who have dealt with this to actually bring up the issue of police confidence in the courtroom, in a criminal space or in a civil space. And so this creates a cycle that allows police misconduct and police violence to continue. Um, One of the good things that we have seen district attorneys and county prosecutors start to do is institute a do not call list. People like Kim Gardner in my hometown of St. Louis and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who we've had on the pod, they essentially create a list of officers who they refuse to call and rely on their findings because they've previously been found incredulous. What that means is that somebody has refused that guilty plea deal and they've decided to essentially bring the officer's misconduct up in a court of law. That then creates a record and those forward-thinking prosecutors refuse to rely on the testimony of those officers because if that doesn't happen, officers that we know are continuously engaging in misconduct can not only continue to do that to other people, they can also continue uh, to bear false witness against citizens. So I wanted to bring this here because it's one of the things that we don't always think about in relationship to the continuation of police violence. But this was an incredibly important argument, and I'm glad that it saw the pages of the New York Times. One of the things Scott talks about in that article, and he says it very explicitly, he says, we need to abolish mandatory minimums. 
And something that's interesting is that I don't think many people understand the history of where mandatory minimums came from and that they were actually initially proposed by folks on the left, by liberals in the 1970s, because what was going on is that there was sort of indeterminate sentencing. And so it meant that people thought a racist judge or parole board could give a harsher sentence to a person of color than a white person or give a white person a lighter sentence than they deserve just because of bias and prejudice on behalf of like the individual judge. And so it meant that the defendant's future was determined by an individual judge rather than the severity of the crime. And the idea of judicial discretion is that it is supposed to eliminate draconian punishment, but some, including civil rights and prison rights advocates, saw it as a driving force of inequality. And so what happened in the 1970s, liberals wanted to standardize the sentencing process to cut out bias to make it so that if you had a super racist judge or something like that, that that could not singularly determine what type of sentence you got. Then they started to recommend mandatory minimums. About 20 years later, they realized they had made a terrible mistake because it had not alleviated the racial and socioeconomic disparities in the prison system. It had, in fact, worsened them considerably and continues to do so as we see today. So Scott is right that we should abolish mandatory minimums. And it is also important for folks on the left to reckon with the fact that the issue of mass incarceration is largely and historically a bipartisan project. Um, and I recommended this book before, I think years ago on the pod, but Naomi Murakawa's The First Civil Right uh, is a really important and incredible book on this front if you're interested in learning more. So people forget that the first big set of mandatory minimums that were passed by Congress was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. There were some laws passed before. There was a marijuana uh, mandatory minimum passed in 1951 that was overturned in 1970. But then 1986 is the big drug bill that essentially changed um, the face of incarceration in the country. It is the birth of the war on drugs. And it was important because two things. One is that the first offense, you get two to five years. And the second offense, you get five to 10 years. And that single-handedly did a lot. It also is where the crack cocaine, powder cocaine disparity first originated at the federal level. That really changed everything. But people forget that these mandatory minimums, for all the talk around mass incarceration that's happening in the country today, people forget that there's still many really wild laws in the books. So in Florida today, one law that I will highlight is Florida Statute 775.087. It is known informally as the 1020 life law or the 1020 life rule. What it says is that producing a firearm during the commission of certain felonies mandates at least a 10-year prison sentence. Firing a firearm mandates at least a 20-year prison sentence. And shooting someone mandates a minimum sentence of 25 years to life, regardless of whether a victim is killed or simply injured. And again, you know, during the time that the drug bill was passed and the time that most of the minimums passed, there were a lot of people on the left who were like, we want to make sure the judges can't just send you to jail for 200 years for something really minor. But what happened when people weren't paying attention or just didn't have the structural power to fight it is that these laws not only blossomed all across the country, but they still continue. So in Florida today, in addition to the 1020 life rule, uh, you get at least a sentence of three years in a state prison for someone who was a former felon or a felon who possesses a firearm, at least a 15-year prison sentence if the offender is in possession of either a machine gun or a semi-automatic gun, at least a three-year prison sentence for an aggravated assault with a firearm. There are like a million of these. And again, as much as we need gun control, and Lord knows we do, the gun control we need has to start the main. Like nobody in the hood is melting AR-15s in their backyard to make them. Like that's just not happening. Nobody in the hood is manufacturing these weapons of war. It's just not happening. And so we're always worried about gun control that becomes about gun users in this way because we've seen it happen time and time again is that it really is just used as an excuse to put black and brown people in jail. And interestingly, in Florida, and this is why prosecutors matter, is that in Florida, the only person who can waive a mandatory minimum is the prosecutor. The judge can't even do it. Only the prosecutor, which means, as and we talk about this idea of people pleading, if it's 20 years or plea, you know, people are like, let me just plea, um, given the way the system's set up. So my news is about food stamps and free lunch. So Trump is doing a lot of uh, really wild things, which is no shock to anybody. But one of the things that he's doing is he is about to change a rule that could kick off about 3 million people from SNAP. And you know SNAP. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. It is informally known as food stamps. And the argument is essentially that there are more people on SNAP 
that need to be on Snap and that people are taking advantage of Snap. So what they're saying is that they want to change one of the rules to say that a family of four who makes $50,000 or more, for instance, would no longer be eligible for SNAP. That $50,000 with a family of four is too much money for you to get food stamps. This change and a couple others they're proposing would cut a couple million people off of food stamps. But what would also happen if they did this is about 500,000 kids would suddenly no longer qualify for school lunches. And because of the impeachment stuff, because of the stuff that makes the news, I haven't seen this on the news at all. Like, this is a huge deal for people who are impacted. The second thing is you just see the callousness of the administration. Like, it's not an insignificant thing to cut that many people off food stamps and certainly not insignificant to cut that many kids off free lunches in schools. And there are a set of governors and mayors who are trying to fight back against this. But it really is one of the things where... The Department of Education and the Department of Agriculture are sort of like, you know what? People will be fine. Everybody will be able to get something one day. Like, they literally are just lying about this. And you have to remember that the administration already changed the rules for nutrition and school lunches against the will of everybody who's an expert in these spaces. And I just wanted to bring this here because I haven't heard a lot of people talking about this many people getting kicked off food stamps or this many people getting kicked off of free lunch. You know, sometimes when we talk about what this administration does, it's really hard not to curse on a podcast where we don't curse. I screamed when I first read this. Obviously, we've talked before about the fact that he is trying to cut SNAP benefits for 3 million people. I personally did not realize the connection between SNAP and free lunch, even as a former public school teacher. And we've talked about before on this podcast, as the three of us know, on days when there is inclement weather or there is teacher in-service and school is closed, there are so many considerations because so often in our lowest income public schools with our most challenged families, there are children who are not going to get any meals if they do not get them at school. So the idea that this administration would have the audacity to cut half a million students And their ability to receive that nourishment is absolutely disgusting. And I want us to be very clear about what happens to a child when they are malnourished. They have difficulty with memory, with concentration, with energy, obviously all of these things making it difficult to learn and function, period. It can interrupt their sleeping patterns, which means that they come to school too tired and it's, again, difficult for them to concentrate. It increases their susceptibility to illnesses because it weakens their immune system because they're not getting critical nutrients, vitamins, and minerals. It can also lead to depression, to anxiety, to withdrawal. It can cause behavioral issues. It can cause short-term and long-term issues for those young people. And this is something that continues to help put young people on a conveyor belt of injustice. Because if you struggle in school, of course, in certain states, if you are not reading on grade level by third grade, there is a jail cell literally built and waiting for you because people will predict the number of jail cells they need by third grade reading levels. We know that you are much more prone to a life of unemployment or underemployment, which means that you will have a lack of quality housing, that you will not be making a living wage, that you will have lack of access to uh, quality health care. And if you end up in a situation where you are criminalized for being poor, where you are criminalized from suffering from injustice, or where you have to enter an alternative industry in order to feed your family, then you are moved down that conveyor belt into the space of mass incarceration. So I just want us to connect the dots here and understand why, besides the fact that this is completely inhumane and absolutely immoral, that this is why so many people fully believe in conspiracy theories about what they are trying to do to destroy communities, because there is no possible way you could justify a move like this, knowing all of the harmful effects that it will have on young people for the course of their entire lives. So yeah, just briefly to add to some of the numbers and sort of social phenomenon, you know, 16 million children in America struggle with hunger every year. 62% of teachers say that children in their classrooms are coming to school hungry, almost two-thirds of kids. Children facing hunger are subsequently twice as likely to repeat a grade in elementary school. Nearly half of all food stamp recipients, the people that we're talking about, half 
of these folks are children. And 20% of food insecure families are not eligible for government assistance in the first place, which is why we need to expand the social safety net and not contract it. There's so many kids who rely on these meals at school as their only means of nourishment in a world in which everything else around them is precarious, in a community that is suffering from a lack of resources, in homes that are suffering from lack of resources, in a world of plenty. And the result of lack of resources, we can never forget, are not their fault. You know, we can't say it enough that the reason one community in D.C. looks one way and another community in D.C. looks another way is not at all reflective of the people in those communities. It is reflective of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation after generation. You can say that about any city in this country. And we have to understand that our schools are part of the ecosystem and part of the histories that have created the landscapes of inequality in these cities. And so we can't understand what's happening in these schools without understanding what's happening in the larger communities, without understanding what is happening in the sort of larger historiography that has shaped this moment. So um, it's kids, man. It's like these are our kids, and it is a crime. Uh, it is added to the list of crimes that this administration has attempted to enact, and I hope you're getting closer to the end of this nightmare. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. What is really up with anti-vaxxers? Why does Goop have such massive appeal? <laughs> and who does our healthcare system really care for? In America Dissected, a new podcast from Crooked Media, host Abdul Al-Sayed talks about the forces beyond the headlines that shape the issues that matter for our health, the ways we're failing science, the ways the government is failing us, and what we can do to get it all back on track. We love Abdul. Abdul is the man. America Dissected is a 10-part series that explores what we're up against in our healthcare system. Remember the very first episode of Posse of the Peoples about healthcare? But Abdul is doing a deep dive, and you should listen, because he's not only focused on sort of what's wrong, but how we've solved problems like this before through rigorous science and competent government, working hand-in-glove, getting it done. The show will explore issues like anti-vaxxers, the call to wellness, the high cost of prescription drugs, the Flint water crisis, the opioid epidemic, antibiotic resistance. You should listen to that one. And superbugs, and of course, the healthcare system. America Dissected is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Subscribe now. And now, the group meeting I got to participate in at the Young Men Emerging Unit at the DC Department of Corrections. This is a conversation with mentors and mentees who live at the Young Men Emerging Unit, or YME. Also, some of the unit's corrections officers and staff members participated in this group meeting. been in corrections for a little over 10 years first as a correctional officer and case manager and um, what I I believe first of all just my belief and um, I think that as a society we, we've kind of um, given up on this youth but I do commend the educators and the youth advocates that have pushed um, to to help society see that it's not is not the youth um, so when I see these young men I see the possibilities and what I see is that they have so much living to do and they are, they're young. And there's so much to do and conquer out in this world. And, and I'm inspired by Halim, who 
I follow up with you and I see how much living he's doing in such a short period of time. And even though there's many years that of his youth he's lost, but he's gained so much. And that's, that's why I see in these youth is like, you have a lot of living to do and this is not it. Direct. So like, I read your bio and I'm just basing my question off your bio because I don't know you. I don't, I'm not on the outside, so I don't know what your initiatives in the community are, uh, what it looks like in a real way. And what I'm asking you is, so in DC right now, I know when I was on the community, one of the biggest problems uh, for my peers was what we call jump outs. And um, it's, uh, you know, the thing about police misconduct uh, not so much police brutality. You know, I know that the only thing that changed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years in the real way is the cell phone and the extension of uh, social media. So my question to you is with the, you know, illegal search and seizure, uh, the Fourth Amendment right, what I've noticed is my peers, they complain to me about police hopping out and searching them without any warrants or any reason and they get felonies off of what they have on them without probable cause. And from what I know, that's against the law. And that in return, some of the times they run and this is what they say is probable cause. So my question to you is, what has been done on that issue of police misconduct, of police randomly hopping out sometimes and playing street clothes with guns drawn looking to arrest young black youth and adults in Ward 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C., for example? Yes, yeah, a good question. So one of the reasons why we focus so much on police violence that results in death is that we know the person died. So we have good data on it because they died. Uh, the government doesn't collect data on any police violence. They just started probably in the past three months. So if you've heard any number of people killed by police, it was because of newspaper reports. So it was activists a decade ago started to do these really elaborate Google alerts around like the number of people killed. So any number we have we think is underreported because it literally is from the aggregate of newspaper accounts and media reports. So like news and TV shows. So the number is a little off. Things like jump outs, we have no good data on because police don't keep records on it. So even things like um, snatch and grabs happen at protests, the police will line up in a line, you'll just be standing there, you think that they're just lining up in a line because they're in a line and they literally will just like snatch one person and then they'll close in and then they process that person and they'll do another one. And like we know it happens, we have footage of it happening, we don't have good data on it because they don't report it. The same thing with like sexual assaults, we know that women uh, get sexually assaulted by the police, not good data on it. So it's sort of a hard, it's like a black hole when we think about police oversight. Uh, one of the other things that we focus on is this idea of filing a complaint. So we know that only one in 12, one in 13 complaints against an officer is ever sustained. We just did this big project in LA in LA in 2016-17, 1,700 complaints were filed against a police officer for use of force, like some sort of force violation. Zero percent were sustained. And we're like, 1,700 people didn't lie. Maybe some of them weren't right, but 1,700 people didn't lie. And in cities across the country, you actually can't file an anonymous complaint against a police officer. You, can, you have to sign a sworn affidavit with your name and address. You probably can't name 10 people in your neighborhood who are going to sign a sworn affidavit with their name and address against a police officer. So in LA, we would say if 1,700 people are willing to do that, then like 1,700 people aren't lying. So we spend a lot of time on those sort of things. You talked about seizing property. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of civil asset forfeiture before. So civil asset forfeiture, the laws started around when mobsters were really big and drug dealers were really flamboyant. And what it allowed was for the police to seize your asset, like they could take your, so they pull you over, you're driving a Lamborghini, you have reported no income. So they're like, how do you have a Lamborghini? They seize a Lamborghini, it becomes a property of the police department. They can sell it and have, they get the money. Now what we know today is that uh, the value of all the things seized in civil asset forfeiture is greater than the value of all things stolen in burglaries which is sort of wild. The police actually take more things from people than the combined value of all things stolen in a given year, which is wild. So there's a lot of work that people are trying to do on that. Um, so that is happening at the federal level and at the local level. 
The last few things I'll say is you talked about a felony. One of the things that we try to help people on is like, what is a felony? So in places like Florida today, theft over $300 is a felony. In Oklahoma, up until 2001, theft over $50 was a felony. When most people think about felony, they think about things like rape or they think about arson. They don't think about what does it mean that you stole a bike or you might have stole a cell phone or you might have stole a skateboard, like that sort of wild. So there's a lot of work on those sort of things that are a little less sexy, but will change people's lives in a, in a huge way. Thank you. Yeah. I'll ask you, and maybe you already know, but um, what percent of arrests do you think happen in the country for violent crime? Like of all the arrests that happen in the country, what percent do you think happen for violent crime? Three to five. Any other guesses? 20, 22. If you think it's more than 50% of the arrests happen for violent crime, raise your hand. No, more than 50, more than 50. For violent crime, more than 50, uh, 40 to 50%. 30 to 40. Less than 10? Okay. According to the FBI, it's 5%. 5 it's 5%. According to the FBI, it's FBI statistic, not ours. And if you think about 5% of the arrests are violent crime, less than 5% are convictions, right? What's interesting is that when we ask the public that question, so the public thinks it's like 80%. The reality is around 5 And the hard part is that that gap is like jail, right? So the gap is like people thinking that incarceration must be the answer, people thinking that like police must be the solution, and you're like, violence is actually really low in community. It's just not happening in the way people think. It's 5% violent crime, 12% property crime, and then the rest is sort of like a, a host of misdemeanors and random things. Uh, but it's actually much lower. So we try and spend a lot of time trying to like change the way people think about it, even private prisons. What percent of people incarcerated do you think is in a private prison? More than 50? Yeah, it's like 8%. It's like uh, a little bit less. Than, it's in between 75 and 8%. It's really low. How do we help people start to understand like what is actually, what is myth versus what is fact? It's so much of the work. And you'd be shocked at like the things that are myths that we spend a lot of time on the outside trying to fight people about being like that just isn't, like it literally didn't happen, you know? Or like that's just not true. And that's a, a big part of the work. I would even ask you, anybody, when, when you hear the police say they solved a case or they cleared a case, what do you think happened? Like, what do you think they did? Somebody, like, uh, somebody pled to it. What's another, what else do you, somebody over here said they made an arrest? Yeah, right. Yeah, so all across the country, uh, when, if you ever hear a percentage of solved or cleared, it literally just means at least one arrest was made. It doesn't mean the right person was arrested. It doesn't mean it was a conviction. Police departments actually don't track the relationship between arrests and convictions, which is really crazy, right? So we're in these rooms and we're like, I don't really know what a clearance rate, like that actually doesn't mean, that doesn't tell me anything about much. You know, so we spend a lot of work on those things. I'm sorry, I see you. Police killing people. How many of those police officers that was killed, yeah, that was convicted of the crime that they said that they committed? It's so small that it doesn't show up in percentage, but it's like around 1%, it's really low. One of the things that we know today that we didn't know in 2014 is that the laws are actually on the side of police. So in Oregon, the law literally says the officer can use deadly force if you engage in escape in the first degree. Escape in the first degree is running. Uh, if they think you just committed a felony, any felony, so felony theft in Oregon is, is theft over $1,000, so like a cell phone, or if they think you're about to engage in a felony. They can kill you. So, so we, in 2014, we were really upset with the prosecutors being like, why aren't you prosecuting the police? And now we're like, because you're going to lose. You know you're going to lose because the law is actually that permissive, right? So when we meet with, you know, I met with the mayor, I met with the police chief, I met with all these people in Portland, and we are sitting down, and when I say it to them, they think I'm being dramatic because I'm an activist, so we just print it out and show them, and they're like, that's really crazy. We're like, yes, that's really crazy, right? Uh, and Portland even has a rule, Portland and Seattle are the only two cities in the country that have a rule that says that the officer has to be disciplined in the least embarrassing manner before the public and the department. Like, that is actually in the contract. So, and then the police were uh, texting racist memes to each other and the mayor publicly said that was unacceptable and he's actually being sued right now because they said that him publicly saying it was unacceptable is embarrassing and what is true is that the rule really says that he can't embarrass the police so it's those sort of things that we literally didn't know we just didn't know in 2014 that we know today i saw you my question to you was how do you not feel safe if you have all these tactic equipments and then you have a partner and then and, and then on top of that you have backup as well so it'll be like five of y'all versus a dude who may have 
you don't even know if he has an object or not. He may. Uh, there is an acknowledgement that people want to be safe, right? What we will remind people is that if you close your eyes right now and thought about the place where you feel the most safe in the world, it's probably a place where police officers aren't present, right? That if you had to imagine like the place where you feel the safest, it's probably a place where your family is, where there's food and shelter, where there's resources, where there's money. Like, and we believe that we can create whatever your vision is for the place where you feel the most safe, we can create that for everybody. And that like no vision that people have where they feel the most safe in the world, it's not a room full of police, right? Like we believe that. With the safety issue on their perspective is that some of it is a little wonky. So there's a rule that police officers get trained in called the 20 foot rule. It's old, it's a really old thing that they made up a long time ago that says that anybody within 21 feet of you can kill you so you can kill them. So we see these cases where like, 21 feet is like a lot of space. So say somebody has a knife within 21 feet and we're like, why did you shoot them? Because they're like, you were within 21 feet. And we're like, that is a made up rule. There's a Supreme Court case that protects police officers who do things they were trained to do, which is a killer for us. But so there's a lot of structural things. There's also, have you ever heard, has anybody ever heard of the 48 hour rule? Like police officers can't be interrogated immediately after something happens. So there's a, there's a rule called the 48 hour rule. So police officers in most cities, uh, they can't be immediately interrogated. They get at least two days before anybody can ask them a question. In Maryland, they used to get 10 days, they now get five days, so it's a, but it all started with 48. And we were trying to understand where this came, we're like, where did it come from? And it came from this scientist who worked for the police who said that the trauma that police face is so different than any trauma that exists in society. So they need at least two sleep cycles so the adrenaline will drain from their system so their memory will be better. And we would say like, if it's good enough for you, then it's good enough for the public, right? Like if we can't interrogate you immediately, then anybody committing a crime, then they get two days to do whatever they need to do. You know, so it's a lot of structural things. A lot of us that come from these communities, we know these things. A lot of what you're saying, just from our personal experience, um, from living in these uh, impoverished areas, disenfranchised areas, but when you try to make the argument, you know, it's, it's so limited because we can only speak from our experience. So it comes across as weak, you know what I'm saying? So people will, will argue against you like, nah, you just being irrational, you complaining, you know, you, you sitting on a pity pot. But like a lot of what you just said right, right now is like what we be trying to explain sometimes, but don't have the hard facts, don't have the numbers to explain. So the work you're doing is very extremely important um, in bringing all these these statistics to light and, and certain facts because the police have a whole lot of uh, shelter um, they have a whole lot of protection and they just they do what they want to do and we've been saying it for forever now and the work you're doing is uncovering the facts to back it up so I just wanted to say um, great job <laughs> some of it is the data and some of it is like just how we tell stories so people say to me but Dre you've never been a police officer how can you say that it's like I've never been a doctor either but I wouldn't go to a hospital where people keep dying right exactly. uh, because like I would just say like something's wrong with the hospital right it's just not something's not right and I can have expectations about how my doctor treats me even though I've never been a doctor right the police will say like they have to make split second decisions. I'm like, you know what? Teachers make a new decision every 30 seconds. I made a ton of decisions. I taught 60, 90, and 120 minute classes, 30 kids, same lesson three times a day. It was a lot of decisions about people's bodies, about like who could talk, da da da. If I kicked your child down the stairs and I said to you, you know what? I had split second decisions. You would be like, that's unacceptable. You know, like there'd be, there'd be no version of me being like, I made split second decisions that you would be like, cool. Like, I see why you kicked my kid, you know? like. That doesn't make sense. So when we even make the case for abolition or the end of prisons, we can acknowledge that like sometimes people do things that means that they need to be separated from society in the same way that like this kid I taught, when he threw something across the room, he had to go. It was like, Armani, you just gotta go for a second because it's not working, right? But you gotta go for a second is different than me locking him in a closet, right? And that like when we think about incarceration, it's like if I want Armani to make better decisions when he comes back into my classroom, locking him in the closet is just not gonna set him up to do that. He's just gonna be mad at me, you know what I mean? Like saying you need time out and go to the principal's office, like that is actually saying you need to get out of the classroom for a second, but I wanna set you up so when you come back, you just make better decisions, right? And like some of that is the storytelling part of what we do. It's not just the data, it is like pushing people because the police will say they're not safe. It's like, we're not safe people. Like we both not safe, right? So join the club, but they're not safe people, right? Like how do we, and people say like the crab's in a barrel and we remind people 
when people talk about crabs in the barrel, uh, that the barrel is not the crab's natural habitat, right? That like the, the crab didn't grow up in a barrel, that there's actually enough space in the water. And we want to live in a world where we always remind people there's enough space in the water, right? That like there, we make enough food so everybody can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's not a food scarcity. There's enough money. There's enough, re like we, there's enough of all the stuff we need to do what's right. So when we think about hunger, we say hunger is a political condition. It's not a resource issue, you know? Um, you said uh, you was in uh, Portland doing some work recently. Um, when you gave this stats and statistics about um, the crime and how the violent crimes is at a low, lower than what people think, and when you gave um, the policy about the police, what was their reaction? And uh, what is did, uh, you or your group of guys, whoever you work with, like what is your like, what was your purpose of giving them the facts? Like, was you trying to change the policies, the ways? And if you did, like. Did it happen, or is you working to change these policies about what the police have been doing, how low the numbers are, and you know just basically opening people's eyes in the community of what really the police are doing? Yeah, you see it on CNN and all the other news channels, but we see it. But what is the work being getting done behind the scene? It's a good question. When I first met with the mayor and the police chief, I was in the city doing this big talk, and they requested to meet with me. So they wanted to meet. So I went the room, met with them. We have some things that we care about, so I pushed them. But the police chief had just been there for three months. We had a tough meeting, uh, that first meeting. The second one, they just elected a, a black woman on the city council, and she is like on it. So I went back for another, I had to do a talk, and she was like, well, you can meet with my team, and then she can be in these community leaders. What, I, what we now do is like, I can talk about this stuff, and people sort of believe me, but we like to just show you because we believe everybody's smart enough to understand it. So with the community leaders, instead of doing this like big talk, we like printed out the things and walked them through it so they could see it. And they were like, oh, this is bad. And we're like, yes, it's bad. So when we were back in Portland, it was about uh, helping them focus on different things. They were focusing on things that just didn't matter. So what we would say is that like, most of the solutions that'll change people's lives are simple, but not small. That like, you can probably right now dream of a way to make sure every kid in your neighborhood gets breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can probably identify a building. You can probably like identify the best time that like kids should come. Like you actually, most people are actually smart enough to do it. One of the ways that the status quo continues to be the status quo is by convincing you that like you just aren't, there must be smarter people somewhere. And as long as you think that there are smarter people somewhere, like you actually will never be empowered to make a difference in your community. So in Portland, it was about saying, like they read it and they were like oh you can get killed for escape in the first degree and it's like yes that literally and they're like that's crazy and you're like that is crazy and it's like what are you going to do about it and they're like we're going to work with our legislator and i was like yes you know so we're following up with them in oregon for instance they have a thing called measure 11 so every 50 any teenager charged with any felony is automatically given five years a minimum of five years in oregon so they were trying to repeal that and that was a little more important than some of this other stuff so like they got some of that taken back but yeah, I'm hopeful because we now know how it got bad. Before, what we want to remind people is that the goal is not better people. The goal is not better police officers, it's not better judges, it's not better mayors, it's not better wardens or directors. The goal is that we have a system that works and is fair whether the people are good or not, right? Like the goal is a system thing because the more and more that we rely on good people, then like you just never get a good person forever, right? We want a system that works. Uh, and in Oregon, that was our work with them. Based on the stats and data and what you do know about uh, policing and the prison system, what do you see the system being in 10 years for the younger youth and the ones that's coming up under us, the new generation? The Republicans rewrote the tax code, like the way who has to give taxes, uh, in the biggest rewrite of the tax code ever, like literally in the country's history, and they did it in maybe six days it was like quick dirty and i'm not joking the last version of it was written like handwritten on a piece of paper when they interviewed the republicans and said did you read it they hadn't read it but they voted on it anyway their biggest rewrite of the text in the history of the country and i think about that and i'm mindful that if we wanted to end mass incarceration in a weekend we could do it right like it is if you can rewrite the tax code which is like crazy and complicated we could actually do all of this stuff really quick so when we say the system is broken and people say, oh no, it was designed to be that way, my takeaway is that it was designed, right? People made it up. Because people made it up, we can make something better. So when I think about 10 years, I want to look back in 10 years and be like, we just made a whole set of things not crimes, right? Maybe you get a ticket for it, but it's not a crime. So like, jump in the turnstile, 
give people tickets for days, right? Not a crowd, like, I want to decriminalize a host of things. I think that addiction should be a public health, you know, like, the things we know, it's not like, I'm not like a rocket scientist. It's like, we actually know these things already, you know? And like, I want us to put them in practice. That's what I want to see in 10 years. Thank you to the residents and staff of the Young Men Emerging Unit and the D.C. Department of Corrections for allowing us to visit and share this conversation with the pod. That's it for this week's show. Thanks so much for tuning in to Buy Save the People this week. Rate and subscribe wherever you listen, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.